Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. What kind of school does a child go to? My daughter goes to a charter school. I would love to send them to public school. I want a better school, better teachers, the type of schools that I don't have to pay $25 for each kid to play a sport in school. So I guess I want her to go somewhere probably not even in the neighborhood. And so that forces us to make a decision of where we live and what we do, and it's a vicious cycle. People moving out of the city to find better schools and then the schools don't get the funding that they need. Does it matter to you whether or not public education is available. Absolutely, it matters very much so. I went to a public school and uh, I had a very good experience of loving, caring, teachers, students, and it does matter. I think people should have options, period. Let them choose where they wanna go, what they wanna do, and how they wanna do it, it's their life. Yeah, let's get it. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show. And shout out to New England Public Media joining us for the first time this week. Glad to have you in the community. Kara Fitzpatrick has covered education for two decades. She won the Pulitzer Prize for local reporting in 2016 for a series called Failure Factories, which was an investigation that traced the rapid decline of five elementary schools in one Florida county. Now, in a new book, Kara Fitzpatrick focuses on education at the national level and tells the story of a six-decade-long movement that has picked away at the very idea of public education in the United States. The book is called The Death of Public School, How Conservatives Won the War Over Education in America. And note that the subhead is in the past tense, because Kara makes a bold argument that public education isn't just ending, it's practically over in many communities across the country. She joins me this week to walk us through that argument and through the history she chronicles in her book. Kara, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the term public education itself, because the movement you describe would challenge the premise that they've threatened public education. How do they define public education? Well, our country has defined public education for more than 100 years as a public school being secular, tuition-free, uh, and generally open to all. You know, there's there's different ways that schools will define their admissions, but generally open to all. And and how does this movement define public education? Well, so there's been this effort largely by conservatives in the school choice movement to sort of broaden that idea and to say that really any education being paid for with tax dollars is in effect public education. And so they would say, if you're using a school voucher, which is tax dollars, to pay for a private religious education, that that in itself is also public education. Anything with public money 
that's public. Uh, and, and we'll talk in great detail about this, but the, in the broadest sweep of terms, why does that make a difference to you? Why, why, are, why are those different ideas? Well, you know, I want to be clear. I'm a journalist, not an advocate. Um, so I'm not, I'm not saying that, that the school choice movement is inherently bad. You know, it's a complicated, nuanced thing. Um, you know, but I think it's an important thing to chronicle and to understand this sort of shift toward putting more and more tax dollars into, you know, private education options that are rather different from how we have traditionally understood public education in this country. That it's a significant shift. And, and, and um, well, we'll get into the detail about why that's a significant shift, but it's a significant shift in how we've thought about it over the years. Um, you've covered Florida schools closely. Ron DeSantis has built much of his national profile fighting culture wars through school curriculum, but he's also worked hard to redefine public education in this way more broadly. What has his role been in this? How so? And and how do these culture war battles relate to that effort? Well, so Ron DeSantis has been one of the Republican governors who's been talking a lot about this idea and, and in fact, has said something quite similar, you know, that the idea of, of anything that is being paid for with tax dollars is public education. He's said that. And, um, and that idea has been around for a while. What DeSantis has done in Florida is really to sort of use these culture war issues to attack public schools in a way um, and to argue then that, you know, that Everyone should have this choice to go to other places, you know, to have vouchers, to have education savings accounts, to be able to choose any type of education, really, that reflects their own values. And it's, um, you know, it's something that that he has really made part of his platform, but it's also something that he's built on in Florida. You know, Florida has had school choice for for a couple of decades, and mm-hmm. so it's not it's not just DeSantis who has done that, but he really has has picked up the momentum on that. Yeah, and I guess what I want to get at with this is, I mean, we hear that the news is always so much about these sort of juicy culture war fights, which are deeply important. And I'm taking from your reporting that there's something below that as well, though. Like this, there's something more fundamental than just the argument over, not just the argument over curriculum, but then the argument over curriculum. There's a fundamental thing that's shifting in his, in the conversation that he's trying to push. Well, I mean, I think to some extent, DeSantis is, is really using those issues, you know, politically. It's, it's not, it's not necessarily that the culture wars are something that he cares deeply about. I think it's it's a, it's a it's a strategy essentially that's being used by a lot of Republicans, and that has actually been outlined fairly transparently by some school choice advocates. You know, um, Christopher Rufo, who's a well-known conservative activist, said in a speech a year or so ago that to have universal um, you know school choice, that you had to have universal public school distrust, and so. It's it's essentially a strategy to win legislatively, you know, to build on these school choice programs by sowing a certain amount of of suspicion in the public education system. Right. Ironically, if you can change the culture conversation about schools, you can change the uh, budgeting conversation about schools, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I think all of this really comes back to if you are giving money to 
parents for any educational option. There's only so many students out there, and that's going to send funds in different directions, you know. And and I think we've seen that in Florida. And the latest move, you know, from DeSantis has been to open up school vouchers, you know, uh, education savings accounts to all kids, regardless of income. Every kid in the state is eligible. And that's a push that we've seen in other places as well. You make the case, as I said in the book, that uh, uh, the Republicans and conservatives who want to see this definition change have already won the war over education, that this is a past tense thing. What what marked the shift for you? So this is um, this is a, an argument that is definitely upsetting some people. I'm definitely getting some feedback that <laughs> it's not over yet. Um, you know that people are are still are still fighting these battles. For me, I think what I was sort of reflecting on was looking at you know 60, 70 years of history and how far the school choice movement has already pushed this definition of public education, how many victories they've had. You know, we have more than half the states in the country now that have these programs. There's been, um, you know, a pretty large explosion of school choice legislation in just the last couple of years with the pandemic. And then also looking at sort of the legal history behind this and all of the court victories that have been won, you know, that really have opened the door to these these programs and and with the Supreme Court saying, you know, that this is okay. This is an okay use of tax dollars. And and what what are the consequences of that? Like what is what's the difference in the end? I mean, I think I think what we've started to see already is that you have red states and blue states with dramatically different education programs. You know, I grew up in Washington state, um, in a conservative corner of Washington state, but the state is, you know, a blue state and it, it has almost no choice, right? It still has a pretty traditionally understood public education system. It has some charter schools, even that was a battle. Um, and then, you know, I moved to Florida and I cover education there for a long time and it has this huge amount of choice. It has charter schools and it has these different private school choice programs. And, and it's, a radical change between just those two states. So you're you're already talking about having a system where I can move to one state and have an extremely different public, you know, this idea of public education system than I do in another. And um, in Florida and in some of these red states, it's now entirely possible to have your child have their entire education paid for with tax dollars, but not actually go to a traditional public school. Yeah. And I guess, I mean, so that's the big idea of the difference. But to, you know, to a parents, to students who feel like they are stuck in schools that are not working, schools like those elementary schools you investigated in Florida, it's all fine and good to talk about these big ideas around public school. But for, and, and we'll get into this after a break in more detail in, in some of the specific places you reported, but for families and students just trying to make it through K through 12 and get a good education, why should they care <laughs> that um, there's a different school system in Florida versus in, in in Seattle? You know, I think it's one of the things that I grapple with a lot is this sort of tension between what's right for an individual family versus sort of this systemic issue, you know? And I think that one of the things I, I really reflected on when I was reporting those series of stories in Florida is that, you know, we would, our team of reporters followed families and interviewed families about their 
their school options because many of them were trying to flee those those traditional public schools that were really, you know, under-resourced and underperforming and had had some pretty serious issues. And you know, sometimes they went and found a better option and sometimes they tried things that didn't actually work much better. You know, they tried a charter school, then they tried a private school with a voucher. And that was one of the the things that I really was trying to to sort of think about was you know, what do you do if you're one of those families? Because mm-hmm. if you try to change a school, by the time you really make, you know, much headway on that, your child's going to be graduating. Right. You know, I mean, if, if your kid's not learning to read now, it's an urgent problem now. And I think that's one of the sort of powerful arguments for the school choice movement. But I think, you know, you also have to sort of grapple with this bigger idea then of what does that mean for the system as a whole? Because those schools in Florida now have improved from when we reported on them. And one of the ways that that happened is that the school district put a lot more money in there and they tried to stem teacher turnover. You know, they, they did things to try to improve those schools. And so if everyone flees and that is the solution, then ultimately what happens to those schools? We need to take a break. I'm talking with Kara Fitzpatrick, author of the new book, The Death of Public School. And we can take your calls as well as your text messages now at 844-745-TALK. We can take any questions for Kara Fitzpatrick about the state of public education in the U.S. Also, if you decided not to send your child to a public school or if you chose private school for yourself, what pushed you to make that decision? I'd like to hear you hear how you thought about it. Coming up, we'll dig into the history of vouchers. Stay with us. Hey, everyone. This is Kusha. I'm a producer. I want to remind you that if you have questions or comments about what you're listening to, we at the show would love to hear from you. Here's how. First, you can email us. The address is notes at wnyc.org. Second, you can send us a voice message. Just go to notesfromamerica.org and click on the green button a little bit down the page that says start recording. Finally, you can message us on Twitter and Instagram. The handle is at noteswithkai. However you want to reach us, we'd love to hear from you and maybe use your message on the show. All right. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Carnegie Hall has welcomed a dizzying array of performers. To have Andy Kaufman, Frank Zappa, and Birkett Nielsen and Horowitz on the same stage, it becomes this kaleidoscope of our history. I'm Jessica Bosk. Join me for the new podcast, If This Hall Could Talk. It's all about our unique cultural history, as witnessed by one of New York's most beloved institutions, Carnegie Hall. Listen now, wherever you get podcasts. Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright, and I am talking with Pulitzer Prize-winning education reporter Kara Fitzpatrick about her new book, The Death of Public School. We can take your calls and we can take your text messages now as well. If you have a question for Kara about the state of public education in the U.S., 
Kara, vouchers are a driving force in the history you describe. Where did the idea for school vouchers start? So there's not really one place that you can pinpoint. I decided to start the book in 1950 because at that in that period of time, you had kind of three different ideas for vouchers. You had Milton Friedman, an economist, making uh, an economic argument for school vouchers. You had Virgil Bloom, who was a priest who was making an argument that school vouchers really should be used um, for religious education to give uh, religious families that option. And then you also had segregationists in the South who were you know, coming up with school voucher programs to get around desegregation um, in the years leading up to and after Brown versus Board of Education. And just say more about that. The point is that this was an effort to say, okay, uh, if we have to integrate schools, we need new options. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's interesting because segregationists were doing a lot of things to try to thwart Brown versus Board. Um, but one of the things that they, they came up with, and it was actually considered almost a, a moderate choice because they also were closing down schools altogether. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the things they came up with was this idea of the school voucher was sort of like an escape valve that families who really could not... Um, or would not send their child to a desegregated public school, could use a voucher to then go to an all-white private school. And and beyond, so there there's sort of that, I'm going to call it nefarious <laughs> intent. There's Milton Friedman talking about economics. There's uh, Virgil Bloom, I think you said, talking about religion. Um, did everybody understand it as a way to work, that it was going to work the same way? What was the idea about how this was going to work? You know, the the mechanism was was pretty similar, actually. You know, the idea was that that the government will give a family a certain amount of money and then they can use that to pay for private school tuition. So the idea was essentially the same. It was just the the motivations behind it, you know, that were, were fairly different. Right. Let's go to Vanessa in Chicago, who I believe is a teacher. Vanessa, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, Vanessa. Do you have a question for Kara? I don't have a question. I have a comment about what she's talking about, which is there's a controversy right now with our union, Chicago Teacher Union, that our president, who's always defended public education, took her kid out and put him in a private Catholic school. So right now that's our controversy that you said that you defended that, that you didn't want to defund our schools or keep our public schools as choices. And now that's a controversy. So it's just interesting. And I understand there's a lot of issues in certain schools in Chicago, the inequity, depending on your zip code. So, but that's a controversy right now. It's just, it just hit the nail on the head with the topic. And Kara, go ahead. You were, it, uh, just, it's interesting because I, I think, I, I don't want to say we see that a lot, but you do actually see it, um, this sort of tension between someone advocating for public education and then what they actually, the choices they make with their own family and and I mean you see that all the time and so it's interesting that it's that it's happening there. I mean it's it gets us back to what we were talking about before the break though you know I mean if you it's one thing to talk about systemic questions um in I in in big picture but I mean if you have an education challenge as a student or as a parent it is a right now challenge. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's a very real thing that you know that parents have to deal with in the moment and and 
their own child might not work, you know, that school might not work for their own child for a variety of, of reasons, you know, and, and that's a that's a tough thing. I think one of the things, though, that, you know, you want to push back on a little bit is also the idea that there's something inherently better about private schools, because there's often that notion, you know, and, and you'll talk to families where they're interested in their child going to particular private schools, but maybe they haven't actually even explored the public options, mm-hmm. you know, and, where, and, and that's that's something I think that also has to be part of the conversation. Where do you think that idea comes from? That private schools are inherently better. Yeah. I mean, I think I think that's been around for a really long time, and it actually it showed up in some of the research I did, um, you know, where it was sort of this assumption um, when some of these programs started that they were giving uh, disadvantaged children a way out of low-performing public schools and that private school must be better, you know? And that that actually hasn't really ended up being the case with a lot of the research on school vouchers. That really hasn't, hasn't panned out. But I think there is just this idea out there that, you know, that private schools are better and, and perhaps that they're better resourced or or, you know, perhaps they have fewer behavior challenges. There's just that kind of floats around in the air a little bit when you talk to parents. Yeah. One question we are getting a couple of text messages about is special education. Um, and I think this might touch on the private versus public and whether something is inherently better. Um, that, you know, in public schools, accessibility, this is the idea we're hearing from listeners, that accessibility um, is challenging and and it, it may be easier to find the accessibility needs you have for, for for your child who needs special education in private school. Is there any truth to that? You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting comment because when you, there are voucher programs that are actually designed for students with disabilities. But one of the things that you lose when you, when you do that is you lose your rights as a, as a parent, you lose you know, what's guaranteed to you in in federal law. And so there's a little bit of risk in that. Mm. And I think, you know, you do, you do see families who are not finding a good fit. And that's a really challenging issue. And, uh, you know, the New York City public school system actually pays quite a bit of money to families who are opting to go private and have, have essentially said, this isn't working for us, and then proven it's not working for us. You know, but but there is a little risk in that because you are not guaranteed the same rights and private schools don't have to accept you and they don't have to provide the same services that perhaps the public school was providing or isn't, you know, has to provide. Right. The caller mentioned Chicago earlier. I, I want to talk about another Midwestern city that you report on at length, Milwaukee, um, which is called the birthplace of education freedom by some uh, of the leading voices in the school choice movement, people like uh, former Trump administration education secretary Betsy De- DeVos, for instance. So this is a city where 40% of the population is black. Um, it uh, is considered, uh, again, the birthplace of education freedom. How did a movement led by, as I understand it, conservatives and Republicans make school choice and vouchers appeal to black communities in Milwaukee? It's really a fascinating story, um, and part of the reason I, I was drawn to it when I was writing the book um, is that the Milwaukee public school system had, you know, had some of the, the troubles that are common with urban school systems, and there was a legislator, a Democratic Black legislator who um, named Polly Williams, who was deeply interested in education and had done 
just a number of different proposals trying to address what she saw as some of the problems in the Milwaukee public school system, particularly, you know, pertaining to Black students. And, you know, one of them... One of them was actually she had a proposal to create an all-black school district um, in the heart of of Milwaukee. That was a hugely controversial proposal, but just a number of different things. And then none of it, it kind of none of it went anywhere. Mm-hmm. And she became a little disillusioned with her own party, with Democrats who weren't backing her up. And and she she came around to the idea of school vouchers as something that could empower low-income Black and Latino students to go to better private options that actually did exist in Milwaukee at the time. They had independent schools that were very well regarded. And so she teamed up with um, the Republican governor at the time, Tommy Thompson, who was actually a political opponent of hers often, who was a white man, who, who was a rural part of a you know, came from a rural part of the state, and they just had very, very little in common. But they and teamed this was, up. Just give us a timestamp. Yeah, yeah. Sorry on this. For, 1990 is when, 1990. It, when it happened. So, and um, and so they teamed up, and they ended up actually passing a small sort of experimental school voucher program for just the city of Milwaukee. And uh, what was the local reaction? How 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 did how did the particularly the black community there respond to it? Well, it's interesting because in Milwaukee, there was there was a fair amount of grassroots support for it, particularly from the Black community. And I think because Milwaukee had this sort of longstanding history of having some independent, secular um, private schools that were very well regarded and were primarily used by Black and Latino families, um, that gave them kind of a base of support to really kind of push the idea forward. It was fiercely opposed by teachers unions, by the school district, you know, but but it had this this core of support from Black families in Milwaukee, and that really helped uh, pass the program. And there's a broader history here that you alluded to earlier um, that I think you're keen for people to understand that, you know, we have to think about the way a lot of Midwestern communities were changing in the post-war years and the way schools changed in the post-war years as the backdrop to that story. Can you explain what that what that history is and why that's important to this, to understand this? Yeah, I mean, I think what was going on, you know, is that there was a fair amount of of concern in the Black community in Milwaukee about how the public school system was treating Black students. And Polly Williams actually was opposed to integration policies. And there were some other Black advocates of school choice who were opposed to integration policies because they really felt like it wasn't benefiting you know, the academic achievement of Black students and and the burden of busing the kids was largely on Black families. And you already had this this history in the school district, you know, where they had to, you know, fight a, a lawsuit for over-segregated and under-resourced schools. And there was a big push, you know, to try to get more information about how Black students were actually doing, because this was in the years before there was a lot of testing, you know, standardized testing and accountability policies. And so there was a little bit of a sort of a question mark as to how Black students were really doing. And one of the school choice advocates, Howard Fuller, pushed hard to get some test data. And when it when it finally did come out and they had some data to look at, it, it, it wasn't actually very good, right? The Black students were not doing particularly well in the, in the Milwaukee public school system. And that, you know, kind of fueled things. Yeah. And so ultimately, 
it, what did happen with this program and what was it? Why? How do I put this? Was it a success? <laughs> you know, I mean, can we look at Milwaukee public schools now and say, okay, great. You know, black students, from the, particularly from the perspective of black students, we got what we were looking for. Well, the program still exists and all of the programs uh, in in Wisconsin now, because there are there's more than one, have grown. Um, and, and what you have in Milwaukee is sort of this three-tiered system where you have the traditional public schools, which have, you know, they've lost enrollment for years and years. And then you have a certain amount of students in charter schools. And then you have a pretty large, thriving voucher uh, tier. But it hasn't actually driven a ton of improvement in the public school system, which was one of the arguments that it would not only help individual Black students, but that it would actually, the competition, you know, would drive the public schools to improve. That hasn't really occurred. And then, you know, the Milwaukee program has a fair amount of of research behind it. Um, Not all programs do. But the research behind it really hasn't shown that the test scores for students are much different than in the traditional public schools. Oh. There's there's a little bit more parental satisfaction with being able to choose, but but actual academic outcomes really really haven't been that different. Let's hear from Jack in Jersey City. Jack, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I want to speak to the use of the word systemic okay. because I hear everyone talk about it, a systemic problem instead uh-huh. of using the word societal. Um, and I think that the language we use affects how we think about the problem with the education system, with many systems. Um, I don't want to compare it to how a fast food restaurant creates a system to churn out burgers. And I think that if we looked at it as a societal issue, people could become invested in it, even if their children weren't going to benefit directly. Because, you know, we all have to interact with the person that comes out of this school eventually. Like, and... Ideally, I hope we all want a society in which people are educated to be a part of things and understand the reason why you don't commit crimes or why it's worth being kind to people or working hard. Um, and I feel that the education, American education has really lost a lot of that. Um, and how we talk, and we're the evidence because we're talking about it like a system, like these are children. Um, and we're using them as political ping pong. Uh, both sides, you know, everyone wants to do good and everyone's doing the same thing, in my opinion. Jack, Um, I'm going to stop you there for time, but thank you so much for that insight. Um, Kara, you were nodding along. Well, I think, I think that part of what he was talking about is, is sort of the power of public education, the, the sort of aspirational idea behind it, you know, that it's everyone's job to pay for the education of all children. And, um, and I thought that was an interesting comment. Mm -hmm. We're, uh, we're we're running out of time, but we got a number of texts about um, charter schools and why they would be a controversial idea. Um, are charter schools and school choice and vouchers, are they all part of the same conversation or is that distinct in some way? Well, they sort of bump up against each other in some interesting ways. Um, charter schools started in uh, Minnesota a year after um, school vouchers started in Milwaukee. And and in, in many ways, charter schools took off 
and became more popular than school vouchers because it was the idea was to provide a different type of public school, but that it would still be a public school. And so the idea of charters was to give families more choice within the public school system and that, you know, it might be an innovative option that they might find some new ways of, of teaching kids, of approaching the issue, and that it would be sort of free from some of the bureaucratic entanglements of, of school districts. One of the reasons that idea has been controversial is because, again, you're pulling students and therefore dollars away from the traditional public schools. And there's kind of this question of, well, you know, at what point are charter schools maybe replacing the traditional public schools? Like how many is is good? And and are they actually doing a much better job? And that that question has been, you know, debated since they started. Since they started. And ultimately, this question of how are we going to make education accessible to everybody in an equitable way, it just seems to be the one of many, but it's a core question we cannot seem to answer as a nation. Um, we could talk about this all night, but we're going to have to leave it there. Kara Fitzpatrick is an editor at Chalkbeat, which covers education nationally. Her new book is called The Death of Public Schools, How Conservatives Won the War Over Education in America. Much, much to discuss. Thanks so much for this time, Kara. Thanks for having me. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Follow us wherever you get your podcasts and on Instagram at Notes with Kai. Mixing and theme song by Jared Paul. Matthew Miranda was our live engineer. Reporting, editing, and producing by Karen Frillman, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kushan Avadar, David Norville, and Lindsay Foster Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I am Kai Wright. Thanks for listening. 